join me as we ask God for his help and illumination. Lord God, as your people in this morning, we come to you and we pray and ask for grace. Your word is living and active and it is sharper than a double-edged sword. We pray and ask that you would remind us of that power and greatness. Uh, We pray that you would herald uh, your words as a town crier this morning, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit through your inerrant word into our lives, into our hearts, that we would each and every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, leave this place transformed by an encounter with the thrice holy, holy, holy God Almighty. So we pray before you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, whether or not you are a fan of the liturgical calendar, um, I'm sure you would agree that what Easter does, Easter uh, provides, especially Easter Sunday, an opportunity for Christians to get back to basics. Doesn't it? Would you not agree that we can become very cluttered in our thinking as Christians, in our minds we're cluttered, in our devotional lives, they, they fall away, they become cluttered. Along comes Easter Sunday. This gives us an opportunity to clear away a lot of the rubbish and to focus on the foundational elements of the Christian faith. Along comes Easter Sunday. You and I get to think about immediately, well, what is a Christian? What is a Christian about? What is the Christian life about? And on Easter Sunday, we begin to think, don't we? Well, what is it that our faith is actually based on, founded upon, and rooted in? Getting back to basics. I really want to embrace that idea with you this morning. Because if you've got a Bible and you're at Psalm 16, can you look at the beginning of this psalm with me just for a moment? Look right at the start of Psalm 16. And what do you see? We didn't have it on the screen, but yes, this is a miktam of David. Perhaps, we don't really know, but perhaps the idea that this psalm was a song that was to be inscribed in a stone for an ongoing perpetual witness. So a miktam, we've got that. What else do you see as you look down? Yeah, okay, you see that David is appealing for deliverance of some kind, though he doesn't go into it and not much urgency. He does say, preserve me. Friends, it's actually... The next phrase that is key to everything this morning. Do you see what he says? David says, he looks to God and says, For in you I take refuge. So he speaks about having taken shelter in God. What I think you and I need to appreciate just now is that from that point, right at the start of the psalm, all the way through the psalm, he begins to unpack this idea. So we see in the psalm, Psalm 16, the idea of what it looks like, what it looks like for a person to live having sought shelter in God. And please just let me to uh, allow me to give the game away so to speak. What we're going to see this morning as we look at the psalm 
is that for those people who have really sought shelter in God through Jesus Christ, for those people who have really trusted in God, there is, we shall see, joy in life to be had, but more weight. We will also see that there is for them hope to be had, even in the face of death itself. There's joy for those who trust in God, and there is hope in the face of death. And it is Easter Sunday, so let's be ambitious, shall we? I'll move away from the Presbyterian three points and a poem at the end. And instead this morning, let's be ambitious and uh, let's notice five, believe it or not, five aspects of this life that seeks shelter in God. It's the life of a Christian. And we'll notice five aspects of that this morning. I'll move quickly so that your lunch does not get burnt. But we've got Psalm 16, five aspects of the trusting life. First of all, uh, I think we need to notice that the, the life of trust shows, or the Christian life shows one deference to God. Deference to God. That's the first thing. Maybe it's just me. I don't think so, but maybe it's just me. But I think that when we come as a congregation very often to study Psalms, to study a Psalm, there's part of us, isn't there, that kind of longs to have all of the background information neatly presented to us in the Bible. Isn't that right? It kind of seems to make it easier for us, doesn't it? We want to know who's writing, to whom, about what, what's going on in the situation. When was it written? We, we want it all. We want it all neatly set out for us in front of us. Look, truth be told, David, the psalmist, does not give us that here. But what he does, and believe believe me when I say it, is far better. What David does is he shows us the starting point for a life sheltering in God. And we'll see that if we look at verse 2. If you look down at verse 2, what does he say as he begins? Look at this. He's looked to God and he says to God, listen, please, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are, do you see the starting place? You are my Lord. Isn't it beautiful? This beautiful profession of faith. Do you see what he's doing? You do see it. He is willingly, willingly submitting himself to Yahweh as, as, as Adonai, as his master his king. You're my Lord. But I want you to notice how far-reaching that submission is. So have a look at how he follows it up on the screen. Do you notice you're you are my Lord? And then he says this, I have, oh God, no good apart from you. I've got no good apart from you. Can, can you see what that is? On one hand, is he not acknowledging that God is the source of of all of his benefits and all of his blessings. I've got no good apart from you. It's, it's reminiscent of uh, that verse in James, isn't it? You know, all good things coming down from the Father of lights. He's acknowledging all of, all of that he has is, is coming uh, down from, 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 from God. All good things come down from the Father of lights. But on the other hand, Don't you notice how this is entirely fixed on God himself? So it's as though David is using exaggerated language, don't you think? Or hyperbolic language to say, nothing matters except you, God. 
Nothing is worthwhile. David is speaking to God and saying, God alone, you are my only treasure. Friends, can I ask you, what do you think his posture is at the start of this psalm? Is he standing? Is he jumping? Is he running? Is he seated? No, you can see it. David is bowing. Isn't that what he's doing? As this psalm opens, David falls to his knees before God and he says, you are my God, my God, my King. You alone are my Lord. And so, friends, as we begin just now, I have to ask quite simply, have you done that? Have you bowed to God in full and willing submission? Perhaps it is that you're visiting St. Peter's this morning, or perhaps, you know, you're tuning in to this online service. It's Easter after all. So maybe you've done that this morning, and maybe it is the case this morning that you know that as you're here or at home, that you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You know maybe in your heart of hearts, no, you do not have a saving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to hear this, that the joy that we're going to unpack here and the hope in the face of death that only comes if you do as David does here, that joy, that confidence for death, it only comes if you say to Jesus Christ by faith, you Christ, you are my Lord, my Lord. So we see deference to God. Second of all, we see devotion uh, to God. This is where it gets really very interesting in this psalm. So as David moves on, what he does next is he begins to speak about how committed he is to God. So he goes from that deference to God's submission to speaking about how devoted he is, how committed he is. But he does this actually by speaking about two groups of people. Maybe you noticed that. We've read it after all and we've sung this. Uh, so maybe you noticed he speaks about his commitment by speaking about two groups of people. Can we try and work out who they are, these two groups of people? So if we look at verse 3, what's the first group? Let's have a look at it in verse 3. Now, do you notice this expression here that the saints in the land, the excellent ones. You see that expression there? Legitimately, that language could describe angels. That's the language used elsewhere for angels. But, do you notice the geography? It's not the saints and the excellent ones in the heavenly realms. In the heavens, where is it? Saints in the land, so I reckon everybody in here can see exactly who David's talking about. Who are the saints in the land? David is now talking about, he's talking about his fellow worshippers, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's talking about his, his fellow saints, the rest of the people. Got. Now, that's fine, but please notice what he says about his fellow worshippers. Does everybody get it? What does he say? Does it grab you? He says about his fellow worshippers that in them he finds his delight. Now, let me address the hesitation that you might have with that sort of language. Do you have objection or hesitation with that? Because you could be sitting there and thinking, Andy, I thought we were to find all of our delight in God. I thought we were not to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, finding all of our delight in God's people is this, Andy, is it's not just verging a little bit into idolatry, into sin. Well, well, no, and I think you will see the legitimacy of this if you just 
remember who we are. Who are God's people? (laughs) We are a people who are not just made in God's image, but we are a people by God's grace who have had God's hand upon us. God has worked on us. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? So yes, this is legitimate. It is proper. It is right to rejoice in each other in so much as we look to the people at St. Peter's and especially as we look to the older saints amongst us and what do we see? But we see Christ-likeness. We see God's grace. We see God at work. God reflected. God's character reflected, especially in the older saints. What cause for joy? What cause to praise God? So that's the first group. The second group If we move on to verse 4, we can get that up on the screen as well. So he's dealt with Christians or those who are looking to God for salvation. Friends, who's the second group here? Those who run after something. So what do you do? It's a long time since I ran anywhere. What do you do when you're... They're enthusiastic. They're running after. They're enthusiastic about something. But what are they enthused for, do you see? They run after another God? So he's spoken about the people of God, hasn't he? He he now turns his attention to unbelievers. Do you see that? And what does he say about them? He says two things. It's stark. Look at the beginning of the verse. He says, first of all, that their sorrows will increase. The sorrow, the misery of the unbeliever, that misery will increase. Do, Do you not agree with me that there is a faint echo of the Garden of Eden again? Like the woman in the garden who because of her ungodliness and because of her sin, what is she promised? What's the judgment on the woman? She's promised that her pain in childbirth will increase. Like this woman. So here the promise for those who reject God, the promise for the unbeliever is sorrow and then more sorrow. Misery, and then more misery. The promise is a promise of judgment. But then, the second thing, you have to notice David's personal resolve here, because what does he go on to say about the pagan gods? Do you like it? Look at it. What does he say? Do you see his resolve? He says, these pagan gods, their drink offerings. What's his attitude? I'm not. I'm not going to pour it out. Their names. So the names of these pagan gods. I am not even going to take their name on my lips. Did you see he is expressing his utter determination to have nothing to do with his paganism. Nothing to do with his ungodliness. He's he's walking away. He will not follow false gods or ungodly paths. And again, friends, I think, especially for the Christians in the room, I think there's a challenge there for us, especially on this an Easter morning. I think we know that the bar that we have been called to is a high one in the Christian life. We know that we have been called to pursue holiness, haven't we? We know that this life that David shows us, this life of sheltering in God, trusting in God, is to be a life absolutely, entirely absent of idolatry or paganism. So on an Easter morning, I want to ask, what about your life right now, Christian friend? What a day to begin to, again, analyze our heart, to have a look deep within. 
are we perhaps becoming enchanted by the pagan gods of our age in Scotland? Are you becoming enchanted by the pagan gods of today? Materialism, hmm? drunkenness, sexual idolatry. Friends, we have to not run towards these things. You and I are called to run from them and to run back in commitment, in devotion today to Jesus Christ. So we see deference to God, but we also see devotion to God. The third thing is we see in this Christian life, this life of trust in God, we see delight, delight in God. I uh, read an article this week from, uh, from Time Magazine. <coughs> Excuse me, Time Magazine. The theme of the article uh, is a predictable theme that keeps recurring. So the author of this article was bemoaning how elusive true contentment is. Uh, in the modern world. Everybody with me? It's difficult, isn't it, for me not to quote Mick Jagger in a situation like this. I'll do my best. But the author is saying everyone today is pouring everything they can into trying to find some sort of contentment in life. All their resources, right? All their time trying to find happiness. And what is the reality? They can't get any. I can't get no satisfaction. Right? So true joy just seems this little bit out of reach. Well, into that subject matter storms King David. (laughs) And what he says is marvelous. In verses 5 and 6, what David does here is he gushes. So David talks exuberantly. He enthuses about the incredible satisfaction that he finds in his God. And what David does is he uses a couple of metaphors to speak about the satisfaction and the joy that God gives him. Will you join me and try to identify the metaphors? So the first one, if we look at verse 5, do you see what it is? The Lord is my, you tell me, what's, what is the metaphor? The Lord is my portion and my cup. What's the, what's the metaphor? It's food and drink, isn't it? Do you see? Like David on his knees has entrusted himself to God. And what has God become for David? He's become his food and his drink. He's trusted him and God has satisfied. God is a God, David says, that has nourished me. God is a God who sustains me. God is a God who refreshes my very soul. Food and drink, my chosen portion and my cup. But to get that Second metaphor, I've got to take you back maybe about eight months. So were you part of St. Pete's eight months ago? Maybe you were here. Um, About eight months ago or more, we looked together at the Old Testament book of Joshua. Hopefully we can remember the storyline of Joshua. I'm sure we can. What happens? The, The people of God come into the land, don't they? God leads them into the land. What do they do? They conquer the land, don't they? And we broke off the series very deliberately. We broke it off just at the point where the land is divvied up, isn't it? So there's a lot of chapters at the end of Joshua where the land is allocated to the different tribes and to the different families. Now, do you know that story well? You're the latter part of Joshua well. If you do, maybe you can get me on this one. 
there is one group of people who do not receive an allocation. Do you remember that? So all of the families and all of the people, there is divvied up, they get their allocation. This family gets this allocation. This, let's make the measuring line, let's get the law out, let's, let, this party gets this and they get this. One group doesn't get it. Who is it? It's the priests, the Levites. Why not? They are not to receive a physical allocation because God himself is to be their reward. God was to be their inheritance. Now, if you look at verse 6, maybe you can see what David does. He steals. That's what he does. David pilfers all of this language directly from the end of Joshua. Did you notice it? So lot and measuring line and pleasant places and inheritance. He steals all of this language from Joshua. Why? Say, to declare that by trusting in God, God has become his inheritance. God has become his reward. And what does he say about it? He's living now because of this in a pleasant place. He's screaming, isn't he? He's screaming of his joy, his contentment, his satisfaction. God is my inheritance and therefore there is for me joy in abundance. Now I need to bring this into the room. I need this to bring, to bring this to your door. And this morning, right now, I need to ask, what about you? As you think about your life this morning, as we go back to basics, can I ask, are you struggling for joy? Is that a hallmark of your life right now, struggling truly for contentment? Then if you are, of course, not a Christian, you know what I'm going to say, but I long for you to hear it. If you're struggling for joy and contentment, then Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the answer to that. Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the only one who can satisfy your soul. But if you are a Christian, and the truth is that you've come in here and you feel like a hypocrite, and you feel that there is an absence of contentment, an absence of joy in your life, if you're a Christian, I'm urging you not to forget that reality. We are so forgetful. And so this morning, you come in this Easter Sunday, you come to Psalm 16, do you not hear what you're being reminded about? The simple truth that God really does satisfy. God is the place of your satisfaction. God satisfies. So Christian friend, go back to him. Today, go to Jesus Christ in prayer, through his word, go to Christ and find in him the joy, the contentment of your inheritance. And then the fourth thing we see in this life of trusting, we see direction from God, direction from God. Any um, minister in today's age any pastor who's been a pastor for any length of time, I'm sure would stand behind me and back me up on this, that one of the most common presenting pastoral problems 21st century in the life of a church is people's longing to know God's direction and God's will. That is a common pastoral problem. That's something that we all at some stage wrestle with in the Christian life, isn't it? That we want we want to follow God's will. 
But deciphering what that is, determining which way God is leading us sometimes leaves us with a spiritual headache, doesn't it? Well, as David here, he's speaking, you can see he's speaking about all the benefits of trusting in God. I think it's marvelous what he is able to say in verse 7. So if we can get that up on the screen, verse 7. Look what he's able to say at the start here. I bless the Lord. So a similar idea to I'm praising God. What does he praise God for? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I'm praising God effectively because he has directed me. Now, this morning, right now, you could be there. You could be this morning at that place where you are longing to know God's will for your, your life. You're at that crossroads. There's different ways to go. You, you don't know how to do it. You don't know what's going on. You just want to know, God, please, please give me counsel. And so what do you want to do? You want to shout at King David, don't you? You've received direction. You're able to talk about being given counsel. But David, how has that come? I need to know. How has that come? That direction from God. Well, truth is, friends, he doesn't tell you here. But if you just think about the context, if you just think about it for a moment, you're going to get the answer, aren't you? Like if you know the Bible, you, you know that standing at the gate of the book of Psalms, like a, a watchman, like a guard, standing in Psalm 1 at the gateway to the Psalms is who? It's a portrait of a godly man, isn't it? It's a portrait of this righteous man. And it's a man who... Oh, who not only delights in, but what does this man do? He meditates upon the word of God. And then what happens? You and I go through the gateway. And isn't it the case that as we journey all the way through the Psalms, time and time and time again, we are reminded that it's there, that it's in God's word, that it's meditating upon God's word, that direction comes. Isn't that what the psalmist says to us? He says, Lord, your word is a lamp. It's a lamp to my feet to guide me, to direct me. It's a light for my, for my feet, for my path ahead. In fact, actually, can we not go ever so slightly deeper here? Look at the follow-up line. It sounds almost <laughs> airy-fairy if we misinterpret this, doesn't it? What does David say? He says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. Are you in danger of thinking that sounds a bit airy-fairy? My heart instructs me. I'm led by my emotions. Is that how we're interpreting that? No, don't you see what's happening in the night? My heart instructs me. In the watch of the night, in the darkness of the night, David is pondering what he has studied in God's word. David there is chewing over the truths of scripture and it's there as he meditates prayerfully upon God's word. It's there that direction comes. It's there that he knows what God's will is for the future. Are you struggling to know God's will? Do you long to know God's will? Then come back to scripture on your knees prayerfully, sincerely study scripture and do it hopefully. Do it knowing that God loves you, Christian friend. Do it knowing that God is such a God of grace that he is a God who gives his people counsel. He is a God who directs his loved ones. And then the last of the five, you made it. 
So I'll give you them. Uh, we see in this life of trust in God, we see deference to God, devotion to God. We see delight in God. We see direction from God. And then the last one is we also see dependence upon God, dependence upon God. In the, I'm not one for lambasting the media all the time, but in the media in Scotland in the 21st century, it's true, isn't it, that Christians, the Christian church, is portrayed, we could say negatively, but nine times out of ten, we are portrayed as being really dull. Isn't that right? Christians really dull. I think Scottish Presbyterians... Man, we get a bad name, uh, don't we? We're the doer ones. A Scottish Calvinist is supposed to be an incredibly miserable individual. Isn't that right? Uh, well, if you're visiting us uh, and you're reading Scripture maybe for the first time in a long time, I really hope that what is grabbing you today is that the opposite is true. I hope that what grabs you as you read here in David is the incredible joy and the amazing satisfaction, the delight that David has because he has a relationship with God. I hope that has grabbed you by the scruff of the neck. Now, as he closes, if it's possible, what David does is he cranks up that language so in verse 9, he speaks of his heart being, wait for it, his heart is glad, and then it's like he's running out of language. Listen to this. He says his whole being is rejoicing. He's running out of language to describe his happiness and contentment. So what do we ask of David? I think we ask, well, what is the grounds for such delight, such satisfaction? Well, I would ask you to look at verse 10 with me. You've got it there on the screen or look at it. If you have listened to nothing, make sure you get this. So what is this cause for joy? Verse 10, I delight why. And he says to God, for you will not abandon my soul to shale the place of death in the Old Testament mind. Now, can I ask you, do you see why he's rejoicing? David, David is rejoicing because he is a man who is able to have confidence in the face of death. He's under pressure. We don't know what that pressure is. He's perhaps in danger. But he has placed his trust in God and he is left in a position where he can rejoice. He can delight. He magnify God. Why? Because he has this utter, sure confidence that there will be for him life. He will die, but there will be life after death. And so his whole body rejoices. Now, if you are with me, perhaps, and you're alert, perhaps you're seeing an issue, a problem here. Are you? Notice this follow-up line. So he's, he's saying, you will not uh, uh, abandon my soul to Sheol. And then he says this, you will not let your holy one, what translation have we got here on the screen? Corruption. Or you could have, you will not let your holy one rot. You will not let your holy one see decay. Do you see the problem? 
David died and he rotted. I mean, if we, if we went on a congregational trip to the Middle East, to David's tomb, our treasurer shook his head immediately. But if we did that, if we went there, we went to David's tomb and we opened up the tomb, what would you see? You would see bones. David died and he saw corruption. So what is going on? How can he write this? Oh, there is a beautiful answer, but I I need your help. Would you please turn with me? Pick up your Bible, get it on your phone, go to Acts chapter 2. Verse 29, we end with this. Please do it. Acts 2, 29. For those not quick enough, Fraser has beaten you to it. That's on the screen. Now what is this? Why Acts 2? Friends, this is the apostle Peter. And he is preaching, okay? Now he is preaching at the event of Pentecost. We know it, do we? At Pentecost. And he, Peter, takes for his text, have a guess. He takes for his text this very psalm <laughs> that we have been in here. It's one of the very first sermons of the New Testament church, and they come here to Psalm 16. What does Peter do? What Peter does is he addresses this issue. So Peter says to all of those listening at Pentecost, how can David say this? Like, how can David say, he will not abandon the Holy One, he will not see corruption when David the patriarch has died? And then what does Peter do? Oh, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it, isn't it beautiful? David reminds all at Pentecost, and he reminds you this morning, that David received a promise from God. <laughs> he received a promise that from his offspring, one would come up who would rule and be king for all time. He promised David that from his line would be a Christ, a Messiah, the saviour of his people. And don't you see it? Look at verse 31. Isn't it marvelous? What does Peter confirm? Verse 31. He confirms that this psalm that we've gone through line by line by line, written hundreds and hundreds of years before in this psalm, David was actually talking about the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth. What we have here is a prophecy for us of Easter morning. That in mentioning this holy one who would be preserved from decay and rot and corruption, David here in this psalm was prophesying of the resurrection of Jesus, prophesying of the raising to life that Jesus Christ, the son of David, would know in that tomb. Oh, I hope if you're a Christian this morning, you see what that means for you and your future and for your life. Friends, if you have trusted in God, if you find today your shelter in God, yes, there's joy and satisfaction in this life, but there is sure hope for you in the face of death. Why? Because Christ is risen. He's risen. The Holy One has been preserved from all corruption, and He is the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead, death has no hold on you. Death has no right to you. The sting from death has been taken out. Christ is risen. And if you have your faith, if you are united to Christ, you are risen today also in him. Your eternal life has already begun. 
Friends, we come back to basics at Easter. Yes, the Christian life is a life of deference, devotion, delight, direction, dependence. Great! But the Christian life is a life based on one majestic, miraculous event. On the first Easter morning, the women went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. Why? Because he lives. Christ Jesus is risen. And in him there are pleasures forevermore. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. You have, O oh God, defeated our enemy. Lord, we deserve death. It is the wages of sin. But you have sent your Son. Your Son has dealt with our punishment. He is risen and we are raised in him. We thank you this morning for the message of Easter. We thank you that we have died in Christ. We are risen in Christ and we will one day bodily rise to Christ. And we thank you and praise you in his matchless name. Amen.